casino foes look for loopholes. The next chapter in the Mark Dan saga and Ohio women lag behind. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the Battelle studio at WOSU at COSI, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining Mike Thompson this week, Reginald Fields, Columbus Bureau Chief for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. Emily Reamer, Statehouse Reporter for ABC6 and Fox 28. Terry Casey, Republican Strategist. And Catherine Terser, Legislative Director for Ohio Citizen Action. Opponents to the casino ballot issue laid out their campaign strategy this week. The group called Truth Pack, also known as the folks who own racetracks and out-of-state casinos, claim the casino amendment has some huge loopholes. They claim it would not tax cash wagers. They claim it would do away with church casino nights. Supporters of the plan dispute those charges, and they have formed their own truth squad. Okay, Reggie Fields, where's the truth? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Ready to go. You're ready to go. In you the know, middle, I'll bet. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, do, I, I think both sides are, are they're saying what they believe to be true right now, but uh, there are some, some things that cannot be answered until after, you know, if, should this be approved, uh, there's going to be a, a commission that's got to be formed, that's got to put some of these, uh, you know, some of these rules in place. For instance, the cash wagering issue. Mm-hmm. It's not really clearly stipulated in this amendment whether or not cash wagering is going to be allowed. Certainly, uh, the casino group says that you know it, it probably wouldn't be, but you know, saying that it probably wouldn't be and whether or not it really will be are just two different things. It's, it's, it's sort of similar to the whole issue of exactly when are these casinos going to be built, you know, because it doesn't really stipulate a date in there. So, so they say, yeah, it's going to be built. So, you know, where's the truth? I don't know. Where? Why is this so hard, Terry? Just they want to build four casinos, right? Well, but they've also got seven racetracks that want to have their casinos, and they'd like to be the only game in town. So it really gets confusing. And one of the biggest things next week, in fact, you ought to, the ticket might be a hot ticket, is the Ohio Supreme Court September 2nd, when they hear the or- arguments on whether or not the racetrack slot should be on the ballot. And then the other wrinkle that the people backing the four casinos have is the governor clearly is not happy with them. He's got the attorney general uh, shilling for him. Uh, but under the law and constitutional amendments, the governor's OBM office and taxation are both going to have to issue reports in which they can raise more questions. So clearly, the governor is a number one leader in trying to shut down the casinos. But are these deliberately vague amendments as written, or are they just lawyers picking at them? We're, that's the that's the question we had even last year with the casino issue. And the answer is yes, <laughs> because and and the beauty the the challenge depending upon which side of this gaming interest you're on yeah. is the only way you're ever really going to decide is ultimately in a court of law, which is going to take a long time. Uh, but again, the beauty that the governor and the racetrack people have is they've got the AG to wring his hands and being able to raise these questions. I mean, it's still it's still a business deal, so um, I, I think it's purposely vague because they want to be able to, you know, should it pass, they want to be able to come around later and kind of change some of the rules as you go to kind of benefit maybe the business groups or even if they do finally get any of these uh, large municipal- municipalities and mayors behind them, you know, maybe there's something they're going to want 
you know, in there also. I think the key words there are if it passes. And I guess that's what I keep thinking about when I see this going back and forth. You know, I don't under I don't I'm not quite sure how much the average person is really paying attention to how closely the ballot language goes. And I wonder if they can get past the people who have voted no four times in the last 12 years. Do you know what I mean? And if it does pass, which, you know, I just don't know that it can, what do you, you know, what do you do then? If it was going to, if it didn't pass last time when the economy, you know, when people were really shocked by what was happening, now they've had another year or so to get used to it, will it pass this time? I mean, I to don't that know. point, though, I, I would say that I think the culture is a lot different this time around, uh, you know, because now you don't have a governor who is just flat out saying, I'm against gambling yeah. or anything like that. He's now for slots and casinos at the racetrack. So I think the culture is a little bit different right now. But they have been like this energizer bunny where they just keep going on this gambling. Uh, and so at some point, I keep wondering much like you were if you at this point we have you know one gaming interest against another gaming interest and if you could actually get the two together then they would win uh, right now they're they're duking it out and lots and lots of money will be spent and it's confusing and voters vote no when they're confused but um, imagine if they came together and what a powerhouse they would be in this economy but they have conflicts of interest I have one of the literature pieces from last fall when Penn National spent 38 million telling people to vote no on six, now they're on the side where they want people to vote yes, but some of the same arguments they used against the other out-of-state person last year will be used against them. Um, Bob Bennett, former GOP chair, signed on to help the casino supporters. Would that help? Surprised by that? Uh, Bob Bennett's gonna be a big winner in it, uh, yeah. but I don't know how many Republican chairman are going to jump on board just because he calls. I think I was a bit more surprised by the FOP endorsement, to be honest, because they're the ones that are going to have to be down there, you know, policing it, you know, and, and it's in the arena district, I mean, you know, that's yeah. what they're talking about, building it. And, you know, when, when I asked them that, you know, you know, traditionally you would think you'd be against something like this. They said, well, from what we're hearing, this would be just like it's an event like an Ohio State football game every <laughs> single day. I mean, to me, that seems a little bit like it would be a challenge. It's a series of events know? that gives 13% of the revenues to help train police officers. That's Exactly. That's why I think we got FOP support. I, I mean, think it's, so, too. There's a, it's all money here. Yeah, and, 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 the and the ballot issue directs none of the money will go directly to the state government for the general fund. It goes to local and for certain training things like this. The one, the, the cash wagering. You think about cash, well, what does that mean? To me, that means the nickel slots, the quarter slots, that's cash. You put a quarter in, you win, you get a bunch of quarters out. That's not taxable according to the opponents. Well, I even more than that, uh, there are a lot of casinos, you go into a lot of casinos where you play poker, you yep. play table poker. Uh, it's not necessarily with chips, you can play table poker with cash. Yep. And I think that's what you know, the Truth Pack group, at least from their perspective, I think that's what their larger concern because that could be yep. larger sums of money. Uh, and then of course, if, if, um, if all the money is not taxed, and of course the revenue projections are thrown off in terms of what comes back to the, to the state. Yep. Uh, or to the local communities through the state, as you say. Yeah. More to talk about. Our next topic, Mark Dan was back in the news this week, or at least one of the guys who helped in the former Attorney General's downfall was back in the news. Fired Mark Dan aide Anthony Gutierrez struck a plea bargain with prosecutors and pled guilty to charges that he used state resources and campaign funds for personal use. Four other charges were dropped. Gutierrez could spend about six weeks in jail and he has agreed to cooperate fully in any other investigations into Mark Dan or his former team. 
Emily Beamer, this means this case is not over yet. I think it is not over yet, and I, to your, your last statement there, you just took the words right out of my mouth. We know that he's pled guilty, but he's agreed to cooperate, and Ron O'Brien has left it wide open. He's agreed to testify in grand juries. He's agreed to cooperate with any investigation into anyone, and the executive director of the Ethics Commission has made it quite clear that his investigation is definitely open into figures in this scandal, including Mark Dan, including Leo Jennings. So I don't think that this is quite over yet, um, and we'll have to see where it goes. And the key date to watch is May of 2010, because that's when the statute of limitations run out, and my projection jumping ahead is this is a two-step game. One is look at Leo Jennings and see what you can get out of him. Leo Jennings is the former communications director and, for Mark Dan. Right, and a guy that got paid a lot of money and paid a lot of money out of the campaign fund also while he was a state employee. So if you can get Leo to turn on Mark Dan, it makes a more powerful case. Because clearly if they can get two instead of one, in addition to Gutierrez, uh, it's a lot better deal in terms of the prosecutors and people like the inspector general. So he's not the fall guy as was suggested or asked of him, of Gutierrez, after the deal was announced. You don't believe Gutierrez is the fall guy? Most fall guys realize they'd like to get a lighter sentence and they'd like to share the wealth mm -hmm. with others. Yeah, I, I agree with Emily. I, this is, I, don't, I don't think it was over even when they were going after Gutierrez. And I know that Mark Dan is, 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 is trying to move on and started a law firm, but I don't, I don't think this is, this is over. And I think it's also evident by the sentence that uh, Mr. Gutierrez received. I believe he received, what, 45-day jail sentence yeah. when he was eligible or he could have gotten up to 10 years in prison, my understanding. Mm -hmm. So for 45 days, for a prosecutor uh, such as uh, Ron O'Brien to maybe go for a deal like that, he's got to be expecting a lot in return. Mm -hmm. and and again, I don't. Uh, I've, I've never thought that Gutierrez was 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 a big fish in any of this. The big fish has always been Mark Dan. Catherine, well, campaign financing is your well, organization's. Yeah, and I think you know when when we came along in June and Mark Dan got just a slap on the wrist and a thousand dollar fine. Um, it was really clear to me um, that we need, you know, we needed more. And and I, you know, I wasn't the only one that was completely outraged by by this. Also, it'd be really interesting to try to find out what actually happened with those transition accounts. Um, and I'm hoping that the transition accounts uh, between basically when when an executive officer um, wants to hold a really big party because they're going into office and the inauguration <laughs> is coming up, yeah. they set up a transition accounts and now they're actually um, you know regulated. Um, but at the time, they could just be this big old slush fund, um, and it would be very interesting to know how much money uh, Mark Dan raised um, exactly and where it went and all of all of those details would be really helpful. And I think in some ways a little bit healing. It feels as if, you know, Mark Dan came and it was just it, it, it was just a nightmare and qu quite surprising and shocking and we'd like to know exactly what went wrong. 45 days is a sentence for yes. Gutierrez for misusing campaign yes. funds. You mentioned Mark Dan's sentence for misusing campaign funds. Is that enough of a deterrent for future politicians to use these funds correctly? Well, 45 days is certainly better than a thousand dollars, but a th why would a thousand dollars deter anybody? And I guess I was surprised as well because I think, you know, and, and you probably will, can help me, Reggie, here, just a few weeks before that, a donor to both Republicans and Democrats, Monty Will, got something like the record fine in the history of the state of Ohio for doing things that perhaps some might say were not as egregious as what Dan had done with his campaign fund. And to your point about just it being so incredibly surprising, 
that you almost shook your head and said, what happened here? Yeah. Okay. The other note that happened just on Friday, the public safety director for the state of Ohio and the head of the state highway patrol both resigned. Henry Guzman, the public safety director, Richard Collins, superintendent of the highway patrol resigned. Two more directors of Governor Strickland leaving. Th these apparently were management issues, personality conflicts. No real hint of a scandal here, but another two more directors gone by the boards. Well, but there were some hints of scandal in terms of, because supposedly the Highway Patrol superintendent was investigating the assistant director of the director. Uh, I mean, kind of the joke is with Ohio having the unemployment rate it's got now, why does the governor have a cabinet today that's almost a third empty? including he hadn't had a development director full-time focused on this since February. Um, so clearly to go into a re-election battle and to have this many key cabinet positions vacant or clouded is not good. But he's cleaning house early though. Yeah, he's cleaning the house early, and, and there was a, a, another small hint of scandal. Um, there's there's currently a, a, an inspector general's investigation going on to a special fund that was held by yeah. the Highway Patrol. I say small because we're talking about maybe a $12,000 account, uh, which is not large in terms of some of the other scandals that have gone on in the state, but it's still enough to make your governor look really bad. This was the account they could use to go out to dinner and stuff like that, and there was a couple of dinners. It didn't amount much more than 120 bucks or so, but... They're still looking at it. Yeah, and the other problem the governor has is now when you're 16, 17 months away from the end of your term, how do you get good people as development director in charge of Medicaid, in charge of school finance, in charge of public safety because most people don't want to come in and only maybe have a ticking clock of a few months left. Okay, let's get to our third topic. Just as classes begin, the state released its annual report card on public and charter schools this week. The results generally showed improvement. Overall scores across the state were up 26% over the past 10 years. 85% of the state's districts got a B or higher. The state's graduation rate stands at about 85%. That is slightly lower than last year. Charter schools, 49% of the charter schools, the publicly funded, privately run schools across the state got a C or, or better. Still not great, but better than last year. Terry Casey, how do you, uh, how do you read this report card? Well, the report card's one of these classics, is the cup half full? Or is it half empty? Because you can look at certain things, like the Columbus schools, they're celebrating, they're still at this middle category. Well, middle category is C, which when you look at all the other people that are at B or A plus is much better. Also within the Columbus schools, in 28 of the areas tested, 15 of them, they went down. So clearly there's a lot of districts. It is hard to compare because in the Columbus schools, you do have a yeah. lot of kids that come there from households where they're not ideally prepared as maybe camps in some of the suburban or rural areas. But clearly, uh, if you're unhappy with the schools and how much they're spending, you've got a lot of things to look at and say they aren't really improving as much as they should. They, are, they measure how the schools are doing, and they measure also how the schools are improving, if they're improving. Does that, is that good? Well, it makes sense actually to look at whether they're improving. It, it, 
you you got at the half you know cup half full or half empty but but really what what you want is is to have them be graded on what they're capable of doing you were talking about kind of you know i hate to think about geography as destiny when it comes to schools but as we think about how that that plays out whether it's a city urban school um that can make an enormous difference in in the quality so having it compared with how well it did last time and the year before actually it makes sense it's a more realistic approach it is a much more realistic approach uh, the graduation rate, 85% down a bit. I mean, is 85%, is that a... Well, is it really accurate? Because yeah. in a lot of school districts, you have so many kids that drop out, mm -hmm. they move around. How do you keep track of all those statistics? And is it 85% of the people that finally made it to ninth or 10th grade, you count as graduating, or do you look at when they started in the first grade? Clearly, statistically, some schools use different yardsticks to count. It's like crime stats. You never, you never can tell right. if they're up or down. <laughs> if, they, they, if a robbery and a murder occurs together, is it a robbery or murder or both? I mean, it, graduation rates are the same. Same deal. It. And another area that, uh, as, as when you get, if you look deeper and once more, you know, figures maybe come out on individual students as well. Um, I still don't think the state is doing very well in, in closing the achievement gap between you know both black and white students or you know whether it's socioeconomic or any any of those areas as well um, I think you know that still has to be you know among the most you know critical areas to, to, to address because you look at who's done poorly it's the urban areas Cleveland Columbus Youngstown got an F the first district ever to get an F in the, under this grading thing. But you look at Dublin, Hilliard, Westerville, Olentangy, they're doing fine. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's obvious what you were talking about there. And, and clearly the problem is if kids did a better job picking their parents, yeah. uh, <laughs> and th they'd be in better shape. And, and sadly, if you're from a household where they don't have reading material around, they don't encourage reading, they don't go on trips where you're educationally enlightened, it is tougher. The charter schools, 30% last year got a C or better. 49% this year got a C or better. Significant jump, but still more than half are getting a D or worse. But a lot of the charter schools also are primarily in urban areas, which are more challenging. And a lot of times you got parents unhappy with the public schools. So it's not like the charter schools are in the suburbs picking the best of the best of students. You know, and I wonder too, when you look at the school report card, especially in the context of all these levy votes that come up again and again, and Worthington will have one, I think, Southwestern City Schools is the one obviously that comes to mind, um, you know, so much, and I, and I wonder, you know, how do people who live there, what do they think of this? I heard again and again that, you know, they thought, A, that Southwestern, I'm talking about, that there was a poor product coming out of there. But then you talk to parents that say, my kids are getting into great schools. But again and again, they said, you know what they need to do is the state house needs to do something. I'm sick of this. I'm sick of it having it come back to me. And I wonder if this report card now will be used, you know, on both sides to say, get your act together, Mr. Governor. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure it will. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of statistics. You can look at it in two ways. <laughs> Our last topic, a study released this week shows Ohio women are behind women in other states in a number of categories. The Ohio State University study found that the women, a woman's annual salary, median salary in Ohio is about $32,800. That's twelve grand less than men make in Ohio. Those who achieve four years of college, 23% in Ohio, that means we rank 39th out of the 50 states. The breast cancer death rate, we rank 44th, sixth from the bottom when it comes to spotting and, and curing breast cancer or, or eliminating it. When it comes to women in politics, we rank 33rd out of 50. Only 21% of the state lawmakers in Ohio are women. Catherine Tercer, 
What do you make of these statistics? What is holding women back here in Ohio? Well, you know, it's it's depressing because, of course, we you know we were just celebrating the 89th anniversary of suffrage, you know, for women, and and so this is an opportunity to say, okay, well, well, what is going on so that only 21 percent of the women that make up the General Assembly, uh, only 21 percent of, of of the people that make up the General Assembly are women? Like, what exactly is going on? Um, and then I thought I. I was blown away this week with the the Ohio Supreme Court decision um, where this woman who was breastfeeding on the job um, was taking unscheduled breaks um, it, and it was found, you know, they didn't rule on the constitutionality of, of a law that would say, you know, that it wasn't about that, but it was saying she was taking unscheduled breaks. Believe me, as somebody who breastfed, I always used to joke, I used to say this, you know, now I know what the cows go home. I mean, seriously, <laughs> like when you need to, when you need to get that stuff out, you need to get it out. And I, it, you know, it's not like she's like, oh, I'm taking, I'm taking a fiesta. Yeah. No, she was <coughs> thinking about, um, you know, the benefits for her child. The court ruled that it was, the company was in, within its rights to fire her for taking these unscheduled breaks. That's right. correct. And so I, I think, you know, that's really indicative of the problems that, w that women continue to face. And it's interesting because I think we look at how far we've come. We have the right to vote. Um, you know, you and I are here on this program. Uh, mm -hmm. but, but obviously we are lacking behind and we need to keep on moving. Uh, the lawmakers in Ohio, tw 21 lawmakers are women. Why, why is that? Is it still the all-boys club? Well, there's a little bit of it. I uh, hate to be partisan, but if you look at the Republicans, uh, on the people on the Supreme Court, three of the seven are women. But all they're all Republicans. Well, I mean, what you might but, say, but, what, but what three of seven say. are women, and the House Speaker was a woman, Betty Montgomery, you look at Mary Taylor. I mean, one of the problems the governor has is who does he pick for lieutenant governor? Uh, and he didn't pick a state treasurer, a woman, which was another chance to put a woman on the statewide ticket, and in fact, he's standing in the way and strongly opposing Jennifer Bruner being able to run for the U.S. Senate. But I really, I don't, I don't see this as a, a Democratic or Republican issue because if you look at the Ohio House, for example, 16 of the women, 16 women are Democrats and five women are Republicans, and it's true. If you look at the Ohio Supreme Court, the, the women on the court. You know, uh, th that's I th more power to them. But I don't see this as a Republican or Democratic issue. It has to do with family planning. It has to do with access. It has to do with being able to take care of your child and better access at work. It, it has to do with ed better educational opportunities. I don't think this is a Democratic or Republican issue. Well, the, the one difference, I'll uh, uh, have a different viewpoint. When you look at Ohio's unemployment map, and when Ohio's economy is bad, men and women, it makes it tougher for everybody, and especially for women. But I mean, the number of counties, it's almost, you can count them on two or three hands, the number of counties in Ohio with under 10% unemployment. So one of the things you gotta do is fix Ohio's unemployment opportunities, and that's gonna help everybody, men and women. How about the, the you know, women, it's, it's been said and argued, with some merit, the women take time off from work to have children that keeps their, their, their incomes lower. It hurts them in the promotion track if you have to take you know, six months off to have a child. And we do not provide space, apparently, for, for that. I mean, it, it makes sense in some ways. You know, I, I was somebody who stayed home for a while, and I made choices that meant that I didn't make as much money. And I work for a nonprofit. That's another choice. So there are choices that you can make so you don't make money. I think, but what we're looking at is a disparity of access, I'm sure.
and that we should adjust for, for the needs of the family because men and, men and women make a baby together. Why do you think Ohio ranks so poorly compared to other states? These, these issues are not unique to mm -hmm. Ohio. Why is Ohio in the bottom half? bottom third in some Because cases. Ohio's had a traditional manufacturing is the mm -hmm. alpha and the omega, mm -hmm. and we haven't yeah. switched gears economically to the future. Uh, and clearly, education's more important, and you've just got to have a lot more jobs and opportunity in the state than what we've had most recently. Okay. I think, yeah, to Terry's point, that central Ohio is more of a diverse economy, I would say, than, you know, your Toledo or your Youngstown or your Cleveland. and. With the manufacturing base, you know, perhaps if we can get more diversity, uh, like we have in Columbus and those other areas, maybe we'll start to see some of the gains that you've been talking about. And we even slighted a woman last week on Columbus on the record, Mary Boyle. She was a nominee for Senate in 1998, and we neglected to mention that last week, so we apologize to her for that. It is now time for our weekly off-the-record comments from our panel. Some final thoughts, some predictions for our week ahead, or the weeks ahead. Reggie Fields, you're up first. Um, Terry mentioned it a little bit earlier, but uh, next week is going to be a very crucial week in the Ohio Supreme Court uh, for the state of Ohio. Uh, not only is the, the slots issue going to be up for oral arguments, but also there is a case involving the state uh, grocery tax, which is also going to be up. And if the state loses either one of them, it's, it's going to be uh, major trouble. And if they lose, lost both, <laughs> have to redo the whole budget. <laughs> <laughs> right. Emily. Um, big national story this week, Senator Ted Kennedy passes away, and my parents live in Boston. They went there last night, 20,000 people standing in line to pay respects to someone who's not Michael Jackson. And so I wonder, um, you know, are the days when people revere or hate, loathe politicians, are those days gone, you know, that you have a family that has impacted so many people? Plus, it's been a week of bipartisanship this week. Yeah. Terry. Uh, last Sunday, the dispatch had a story on Ann Arbor, Michigan, a town that Buckeyes love to hate, which no longer has a daily newspaper. Uh, I predict within 40 months or less, Columbus won't have its main newspaper be in a print version, and probably by later this year, you're going to see their staff reduced by another big chunk, because clearly the media world is changing, and an AP story this week noted that advertising for newspapers is down 29%, which is part of what drives the need to cut and change their business model. Okay, and Catherine. And I predict that the, a bunch of women with babies on their hips and breast pumps in their hands will be storming the state house. <laughs> okay. Can I get a scoop on that? <laughs> <laughs> that is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website. Our question this week, what can be done to improve gender equality in Ohio? That's at our website, wosu.org slash C-O-T-R. You can also get streaming video of each program, and you can check out my blog as well. For our crew here at WOSU at COSI and for our panel, I'm Mike Thompson. Have a good week. Thank you.